Hi, everybody. I'll put in my own shameless plug for that uh, camp. It's a simple one, though. Um, a friend of mine, and actually one of my intercessors, is uh, here today, and his name is Stan Frisbee. Some of you know the name Lonnie Frisbee. Stan's his brother. And uh, it wasn't at a camp, but his brother Lonnie had a profound, life-changing experience up in Idlewild, right up in that area where this camp's going to be. Um, it's not the exact same location, just to be clear, full disclosure, so nobody says I oversold it. But anyway, uh, anyway, his brother had a life-changing experience up there in Idlewild, and there's always been something about those mountains up there. Um, and he came down from that experience and uh, did something small and insignificant called Igniting the Jesus People Revival. And he was a teenager, or, or just out of it. I don't know, Stan could correct me on the facts, but he was, he was a young man. So uh, anyway, if you, don't, if you don't have a good enough reason to send your kids up there, maybe think about that one. Maybe, maybe your kid will be the next one of those. Never mind presidents and senators, that's a downgrade anyway. <laughs> especially, in, especially in this day and age, but any, yeah, anyway, I digress. Okay. Um, there's something else I was going to say, too. Oh, I know what it was. When you were talking about the offering, and you, you prayed something about giving in strange and unexpected ways. You know, one time I was preaching in Indonesia, and... Uh, you know, the people we were among were not wealthy. We were out in the islands and distant areas, and we had to fly a lot to get to where we were going, travel by boat, um, some overnight, you know, at sea kinds of things, jungle trails, dirt paths, the whole nine yards. Um, anyway, it came time to give an offering. <laughs> so here we are. I had some uh, Australians uh, and me and another American, and so we're all traveling together course we're not staying in Indonesia we're going back to respectively the USA and Australia but when it came time to give the offering they brought goats uh, they brought chickens they brought a couple of baskets of mangoes and bananas um, I mean it was a huge offering for them it was it was actually a very honoring thing that they were doing of course we couldn't do anything with all that especially not the goat what are you going to do with that try and get that into Australia Anyway, strange and unexpected ways that gifts can come sometimes. All right. Well, um, if you haven't noticed, it's, it's Easter weekend. And these days we're supposed to say Resurrection Day weekend, so we can say it that way if we want to. Uh, and I want to talk uh, with you today about the power of his resurrection. <clears throat> Paul the Apostle um, wrote the first letter to the Corinthians, kind of later in his, in his uh, missionary career. And he has an interesting verse in 1 Corinthians 6.14. He says this, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. God raised the Lord and he will also raise us up by his power. That's an unusual thought. I mean, for Christians around the world, I think we... Well, if we're genuinely Christians, then we believe Jesus is alive. I, I know there are some people who claim the name of Christian and don't believe that. Paul says, if, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you're kind of not actually 
in the game. So don't argue with me, argue with him. But it's interesting because most people don't make the next logical jump to say, well, if Jesus is raised, I too will also be raised. And so a lot of times when people are thinking about their Christian faith, it has a very much, it's centered around Jesus and his resurrection, especially at this time of year. And kind of what's going to come way out there, but there's this other dimension of between 12th grade and whenever it is that we end up leaving this mortal veil. So God has not only raised the Lord, but he will also raise us up through his power. Well, Easter, for even many Christians, as I just suggested, is, is a bit of a mystery. Um, they don't quite understand all the hoopla, and this is particularly true outside the church, and it's become even more true, I would say, in my lifetime, which is growing longer, just like my waistline is growing wider. Uh, but, but I can remember as a kid when the week before Easter was always when we got off of school. There's never any question about that, and it was always called Easter break. Now we don't dare call it Easter break. You'd probably be thrown out of school and you know given a citation or something of the wrong kind, uh, and told that we are somehow haters and bigots and all that if we were to call it Easter break. And almost, I think, by design now, they no longer take the break the week ahead of Easter. But the reason we used to do these things is because during Easter week, Holy Week is what it's called in the church calendar, we might go to a special service on Maundy Thursday. Who even knows what Maundy Thursday is? And by the way, Maundy doesn't mean Monday. Of course you know, Gary. I know that you would know. <laughs> this guy had a big Presbyterian church in uh, Huntington Beach. He's retired now. What's that? Oh, you're back in the game. Okay, good to know. We need good men like you. All right, so I don't mean Monday, Thursday. Maundy refers to maudlin or sorrowful Thursday. And so people might go to Maundy Thursday services, and this was actually fairly common. I mean, not everybody had equal faith and piety, but, but people kind of knew what this was. And similarly, on Good Friday, everybody knocked off work at noon so they could, because Jesus, you know, he was crucified and he hung there until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So everybody knocked off work and went to Good Friday services. And then this is Holy Saturday, and then tomorrow is Easter Sunday. Well, nobody understands this anymore. I mean, I bet you couldn't find a commentator on CNN who knows what, what Holy Week is about or what any of these days are that I just walked you through. So they don't get the hoopla because to them, Easter is it's just another one of those religious holidays shrouded in ancient history or maybe just a fable. Not that I think it's a fable. I'm just kind of giving you the zeitgeist of our time. And so Easter may seem to be loosely tied to something having to do, as I said, with religion, but after that, things get murky very quickly. And it's become for us um, just another occasion, I don't know, to merchandise peeps. You know, my, my wife, she goes down to the U-Haul store and she gets one of those, you know, rent a pickup deals and buys peeps by the truckload uh, when, it's, when it's Easter. And uh, if you don't like peeps, there's malted eggs. And then there's family gatherings, of course, where we serve ham or lamb, depends on your preference. 
And Easter can be associated with rabbits and egg hunts. By the way, I'm looking to collect on that offer to meet the Easter bunny after this service, Jesse. Okay, good, we got that. All right, and of course, the squeals of children are ringing through the air. And so nobody really thinks a lot about what is Easter. So let's ask the question, what is Easter? Well, it's the day that... Okay. <laughs> this is the day that Jesus rose from the grave. But it's also the day... I didn't think I was going to get emotional. I don't like it when this happens. When I was a kid, my mother would sometimes turn on R.W. Schombach for reasons I never really understood. And uh, he would start crying, and she would say, I hate it when creatures cry, they're just, cry, they're just manipulating people. And that's, that's stayed with me, but sometimes the Spirit of God just sort of decides to do this, and so I just kind of work my way through it. Anyway, Paul also says, 1 Corinthians 15 54 and 55, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Well, death is swallowed up in victory. And with that, as Christians, we don't need to fear death. We can face it in the eye. I like the line that he wasn't a Christian, but it still works here. Uh, Maximus in the movie Gladiator, he says, death smiles at us all. Sometimes all we can do is smile back. Christians should be able to do this because of Easter. And I note when I travel around the world, I've walked into many churches over the over the last several years, where somebody significant in the church has died. And often it's an elder or you know, somebody like that, somebody beloved. And the place is a mess. And on the one hand, I get the grief of, we lost brother so-and-so or you know, sister so-and-so. And yet there's always this kind of lingering despair. And I don't understand that part of it because... For Christians, death is no longer a binding constraint as it is for everyone else on earth. And we really need to remind ourselves of that in a time of COVID pandemics, in a time of war in Ukraine. I mean, all of these things are swirling around us and we know that death is a defeated foe. And so Easter is uh, the most important day in history. Because it's the day Jesus rose from the dead. He'd been executed in a horrible and a wretched manner. And I think a lot of our iconography and preaching about crucifixion is, um, I would say, it's, it's, it's doctored up for public consumption in a mixed crowd in a sanctuary like this one. But crucifixion was the worst thing the Romans could think of, and it was designed to humiliate the person and prolong their suffering for as long as possible and after he had been executed and buried on the third day after his death and actually it, it barely makes it to three days he died on Friday and before dawn on Sunday he was out of the grave it doesn't really pass the 72 hour test but it says something of the eagerness of our father 
to bring his son out of the grave. And with that, it reminds us of what that verse is I just read from 1 Corinthians 6. Just as the Lord was raised up, so us too. We should anticipate and understand that our Father is that anxious to bring about that new life into our lives. And so we dare not forget that we live unto a future hope that is greater than whatever we're facing here on earth. He came back to life and he was raised by the power of God to new unending life, that life that is without end. Now, prior to Jesus, nobody had ever been raised from the dead by the power of God. You may not have ever thought about that, but this had never happened in history. It's true that in the Old Testament, we have the story of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath's son. This is in 1 Kings 16, if you want to look it up later. Um, and then later, uh, Elisha, his, his designated replacement prophet, if you want to say it that way, um, he raised the Shunammite widow's son from the dead. But the thing that's unique here is that in both cases there was an agency or a means. That's to say the prophets themselves. They prayed and these two boys were raised from the dead. But in contrast to this, when Jesus rose from the dead, The father raised him by his own power. There was nobody there. I mean, maybe the angels were involved. We don't exactly know. We say an angel descended, or we read that an angel descended and the stone was rolled away. But Paul says that he was raised by the power of God, both as an exhibit of Jesus' righteousness, specifically that he should not have been killed as a criminal because he wasn't one, um, and therefore it was a vindication but also as a testimony that Jesus was his son. There was no one there saying, come forth or arise or live again or anything of the sort. God, just by his, by his sovereign will, the father decided to extend his power, and with that, Jesus came out of the grave. I'm, I'm belaboring this because, again, in our time, I don't think we really proclaim the resurrection as we should, but it is indeed for this hope that we live, and it's why we're gathered here today. If this isn't true, get up and walk out now. This is a waste of your time. But if it is true, then it literally changes everything. And it's hard to wrap our heads around the resurrection because everybody knows, don't they, that dead things and dead people don't come back to life, or do they? But Jesus did come back to life. This is what we've said for 2,000 years, or nearly so. And it's the center of everything that is the wonder and the mystery of Easter. It has nothing to do with peeps. It has nothing to do with ham or lamb. It has everything to do with that single truth. But it actually gets better. As I already read and have said, because Jesus rose from the dead, we are going to as well. If you're a believer here today... I trust you are, but if you're not, we can fix that at the end of the service. And we'd invite you to do that. I'll give the altar call now. But, but if you're a believer here today, you can look around to the right and the left and know that essentially everybody here in the room is going to be there uh, you know, on judgment day, alive again forevermore. That's a rather amazing thing to say. And it actually marks Christians as different. We have... We as Christians are an unusual people. Peter says that we are peculiar people. Part of what makes us peculiar is that we have beliefs that other people don't have. 
a little while back, this is off topic, but it's worth mentioning here because we're here. A little while back, I was in Australia, and I, was, I have a very good friend who used to be the lead evangelist for the Catholic Church in Australia. He's now been assigned a different role, but, but he was very effective at what he did. And for some of you, that statement alone was a shock. Yes, Catholics do have evangelists. Yes, they do lead people to Christ. And this guy was their number one guy reported to the, the primate of the country. Primate does not mean ooh. <laughs> primate means the senior most archbishop in the nation. And one day he was, uh, he was, he'd gone to a high school to preach and they were having an assembly and you know the questions started being fired at him and most of them had to do with, as you might expect, LGBTQ stuff. And he just said, you know, Christians have a lot of strange beliefs. We believe that uh, Mary had a baby without having sex with a man. And he said it that way, very plain English. We believe that a dead guy came back from the grave. Not only that, he went up to heaven and he's coming back. And when he comes back, all of the people that believe in him who are alive are going to meet him in the air. This is what we believe. Why should you be surprised that we don't believe what you believe about sex? He gave an altar call on that and over 150 kids came to faith. Anyway, we can expect to do as Jesus did, to rise from the grave. Death no longer has a hold over us either. And, and this is the reason why I'm always a little confused when I go to churches where people are, you know, busted up because somebody important died. They've just gone on to a better place, and, and we know what the end result is. This is our hope. This is our confidence as believers. But back to this idea of God raised Jesus by the power of, of his own power. The victory over death start now in this life and this is true at least in part because that power that raised Jesus from the dead resides in us and I think that sometimes we forget that sometimes we feel very very powerless we things have ebbed away we don't walk in whatever that is but about 30 years after Jesus rose from the grave either in the late 50s or the early 60s, and I don't mean the 1950s and 60s, I mean just the digits 50s and 60s. Paul the Apostle wrote to um, arguably the last great church that he had started, which was the church in Ephesus on the, what was then the coast of modern Turkey. And he wrote to the Ephesian church this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you will know what is the hope of his calling. And what are the riches of his glory and his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? Now, Paul was writing to people that he himself mostly had led to faith. I'm sure the revival went on after he moved on. He'd trained people, he'd raised evangelists and probably junior apostles and prophets and so forth. But, but Ephesus had kind of died down by a generation or so after Paul had left, and things had become, well, somnolent if not moribund, meaning they were asleep if not dead. And I think sometimes we find ourselves in this same place where we're rather sleepy-minded or, or we're, we're sort of overwhelmed by what's continually coming at us through media, through the computer, through our phones. 
I know I, I personally have kind of reached the state of saturation with all the stuff that's going on. And people send me stuff every day. I, I don't even look at most of it. Every now and then, if it's the right person and it's short enough, I might get it. But otherwise, I just don't have time. But the, the net effect of all that on our minds and on our consciousness is to beat us down. And so we don't actually hold on to this. And Paul is saying, I'm praying that your eyes, now these are your interior eyes, the eyes of your heart, but I'm praying that they would be enlightened. I'm praying that they would switch on. I'm praying that, that you would see something of the hope of the calling that you've received. And he says, and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? I mean, this is, if you read it in Greek, it's just piled on. It's, it's like you can hardly pull out one piece from the other. But then he says, and what is the surpassing greatness of the power toward us who believe? In shorthand, Orange County speak, Hey, Ephesians, wake up. Wake up. There's a power in you that is in accordance with the working of the power that he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. I want you to wake up to this. That's what he's saying to them, to cut to the chase. And it's, you know, kind of packed into all this language in the Bible, and so we, it's easy for us to lose what's really going on here. But, but, but Paul is saying, hey guys, I led you to faith. When I was there, there were mighty miracles. When I led you to faith, there were great healings. And the entire city of Ephesus was shaken. We overturned the economic structures based on the worship of Artemis. We did this together because the power was flowing through us. Because the power that raised Jesus from the dead was the power that worked in us. Are you guys still listening? That's what Paul is saying to them. And we might say that to ourselves, especially in a day in which we have all of this yak-yak going on back and forth. Turn it off and focus on what Easter is really about. God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is all in Ephesians 1, 18 through 20. And so the power of God is now in Christians, or ought to be in Christians if it isn't, because of the resurrection of Jesus. It couldn't happen without the resurrection of Jesus. And not only that, if you follow what Paul is saying, he wants them to experience this. Paul's been gone from Ephesus for a while, and the fires have kind of died down. Things have kind of settled into a routine. Oh, get up and go to church. And, you know, however they did church in those days, they were... They were doing that, but it, apparently it was a big enough problem for the Ephesians. It was apparently a big enough problem that about the year 90 or so, Paul was now dead. He'd been taken care of by Nero. Jesus Christ appears to John the Apostle on the island of Patmos, and what does he say? I want you to write a letter to Ephesus. And you've lost your first love. That was, the, that was the gist of the letter to Ephesus. And so now we're 60 years past Jesus' death. And so the, the challenge that we all deal with, and all of us do, is that the passions of life and the, the ho-hum of life and the conflict of life and the struggle and so forth, all of this wants to weigh us down. But we are meant to be people of power. We are meant to be people who walk in power. And we are meant to know this experientially. 
not just theoretically. Now, it sounds pretty simple, at least in concept, but what does it take to know the power of God? Well, everywhere Paul went, he preached the resurrection of Jesus. These days, we're talking about finding our destiny. Excuse me for saying it, but I think we're a little bit off topic. I mean, our destiny is in heaven, sure. Our destiny is to, you know, join him there. All of this stuff that Paul says in Ephesians, but Paul's core message was the resurrection of Jesus. And yet, here's the interesting thing, that, I, and I'm going to show you this in Scripture uh, in the last half of this message. As Paul traveled, as he conducted his ministry, he had a growing awareness of the power of God. He started wherever he started. I mean, he'd been knocked off the horse on the Damascus Road. That's a pretty good start, right? He'd gone into the wilderness, and he'd prayed for quite a few years. And he had had various missionary trips where various things happened. He was accustomed to the miraculous without it becoming what do we want to say, uh, too familiar. But with Paul, these things grew. They did not remain static. And they certainly didn't go retrograde. They certainly didn't back up and decline. And so the first place, well, let's start with Galatia. On his first missionary journey, Paul had gone into Galatia. This is modern-day Turkey, the area that today would be around um, the, the city of Ankara, which is the national capital today. Um, that whole district really is what Galatia was. It was a Roman province. And he planted a number of churches in a number of cities. He was traveling with Barnabas. And they had quite a few miracles and things that happened, outbreaks of healing, lame people got healed, blind people got healed. At one point, the locals had been so shocked at what they were seeing they came out and they wanted to sacrifice a bull to him and Barnabas because they assumed that they were the gods that they believed in, the Greek gods, come down from heaven. But there was no denying that there was overt, explicit power moving through Paul as he ministered in Galatia. But when they finished up that first missionary journey, they went back to their home church and hung out for a while. It looks like they were just regular members of the congregation. They probably had regular jobs. I'm sure they were elders and leaders. They probably taught. They ministered in the community, but they weren't on mission. They were, they were just living the life that they lived uh, back at the church at Antioch. Well, later on, he goes on another missionary journey, and they revisit all those churches in Galatia that I was describing. And when Paul writes to the Galatians, he even says, does he who works miracles among you do so? Uh, because you follow works of the law or because you, you believe the message you heard. The last part of that could take us and dis distract us. I think the key point is that miracles were still going on in Galatia. That's in Galatians 3.5 if you want to look it up. All right, but now it's the second missionary journey. He goes back, strengthens those churches, talks with them, does whatever he does. And while he's there in Galatia, he's actually trying to move towards Ukraine. It's not called Ukraine at that time, but that's exactly where he's trying to get to. And the Holy Spirit keeps deflecting him, trying to send him to the West. At one point it says the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let him go. In another place it says the Spirit of God wouldn't let him go. It's not completely clear why they have these two terms in Acts, but we do. And so he goes down to Troas, which is the 
the name that you would probably recognize is Troy. It's the scene of the Trojan War. But in Paul's day, the Trojan War was 1,200 years ago. And while he's in Troas one night, he's praying and he has a vision. That's how we know it wasn't a dream. So he was awake. And uh, in that dream, he sees a man dressed like a Macedonian. I said dream. In the vision, he sees a man dressed like a Macedonian beckoning him, come over and help us. And so Paul immediately concludes, ah, this is why I couldn't get to Ukraine. It's actually known as Scythia in those days. But we all know where Ukraine is now, so it's easier to do that. Okay, this is why I couldn't get into Ukraine. Ah, I'm supposed to go to Europe. You have to forgive me. I woke up with it. I don't have COVID, though. I did a self-test. Okay, so he's trying to go to Ukraine, and he's looking for a region or a province, and God decides to redirect him out of Troas, ultimately towards Macedonia. But the first place that he stops is Philippi, and what the Lord had said was, Paul, I don't want to give you a province. I don't even want to give you a region. I want to give you a continent. And so Christianity begins in Europe. I wonder how many things there are.